As we come to this section of Scripture by way of review this morning, I just want to look back at three key things that we saw last week in Ephesians 4, verses 12 to 16. As you know, here the Lord had given gifts to the church, the early church in specific, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And we know that the apostles were the 12 minus Judas. Matthias was added by the apostles in Acts chapter 1, and then the apostle Paul was the Holy Spirit's designated choice. The apostles, we know, had to see Jesus resurrected in the flesh. They had to be appointed by Christ specifically, first person. They had to, according to 2 Corinthians 12, 12, do the signs and the wonders and miracles of an apostle, meaning gifts of healing and the raising of the dead and all matters of things. And then lastly, they had to speak in divine truth. And it's why the book of Acts says in Acts 2.42 that they continued in the apostles' doctrine, which was equating their teaching with Scripture, with the Holy Word of God. And so as we look back here in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12, it says he gave these apostles and prophets, and the prophets there were not the prophets of old. Ephesians 2.20 and Ephesians 3.5 tells us that the foundation of the church were the apostles and prophets. These were the prophets like Agabus that were not giving inscripturated word, words of prophecy, but they were giving words meant for an individual or for a local congregation. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22, he says, do not quench the Holy Spirit, do not pr despise prophetic utterings, but he said, test it, test it, and then cling to what is good and abstain from what is evil. And so these words of prophecy had to be tested. But as we saw last week, that these prophets, Agabus and others, came out of the church of Jerusalem. They were not self-appointed prophets. They had to be confirmed by the leadership of their church. I think many people think in the early church, making church up as they went, and it wasn't. It was highly structured. It was highly organized. It had elders and deacons. And they had a prescribed worship before the Lord. If you want to know how the early church worshipped, read the epistle of 1 Timothy. It's the epistle of ecclesiology, of how the church should conduct itself. If you want to know what the pastors look like and the training of those men for ministries, read 2 Timothy. That's the book of eldership. If you want to know how they did evangelism way before the time of bumper stickers and posters and handbills and catchphrase slogans and 30-second sound bites, Titus is the handbook of evangelism. It was a wicked place. Paul left Titus on that island of Crete, and the Cretans had a very poor reputation. But yet there was a pocket of believers there shining the light of the gospel to their community. So in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, the handbook of, of ecclesiology, how are we to live within the church? Read 1 Timothy. Eldership, 2 Timothy, evangelism, the book of Titus. So the apostle Paul, when he's coming here, he is describing to them these apostles and prophets which were given to the early church as the foundation of the church. So they were foundational. We know that there, there's not apostles today like there was with the 12. There is the small a apostle as being simply uh, the sent ones, missionaries, church planters. But here the 12 were unique in their gifting, same with the prophets. But we have today evangelists. Now we're all called to be a witness of the gospel, aren't we? We're all to let our light shine in the vocation, in the neighborhoods, in the places of recreation. We're all to be witnesses of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a joy it is to be able to take a friend or a neighbor, a co-worker, or someone we might meet at St. Arbucks. For those of you who are visiting, that's Starbucks. Uh, but St. Arbucks and others, places where we can share the gospel. Isn't it a joy when the Lord uses you to lead someone to Christ by proclaiming his gospel? That's a great privilege. It's a great joy. And so here, though they, we are all to be witnesses, there are some uniquely gifted as evangelists to proclaim the gospel and to go, as Paul said in Romans 15, 21, where Christ is not yet named. And then we see also shepherds and teachers, pastors 
and teachers, shepherds, those that care for the souls of the church, those that are there for counsel, those that serve and provide care for people within the body of Christ, and teachers, those that are expounding God's Word, that give the sense of it, as Nehemiah 8, 8 says. If you want to know what expository preaching should look like or any pastoral ministry, we should not interpret Scripture for what we bring to it with our experience. We should give the sense of the text. What does it mean? In fact, more specifically, what does Scripture mean if we were dead? What does it mean in and of itself? What is it actually saying? Then we can apply it to various life situations. But the job of any faithful minister of the gospel, of any pastor, is not to kind of give sermonettes for Christianettes or to make up a meaning just to fit into contemporary culture or to fit into some sort of area of, of influence, but we are to preach the word. Daniel Webster, that great statesman, that great early American statesman, was asked one time, why is it that he went to the little country church rather than the large influential church in downtown Washington? And he says, oh, that's easy. He says, the large influential church preaches to Daniel Webster, the statesman. But in that little country church, they preach to Daniel Webster, the sinner. And that's where I need to be. So evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now notice in verse 12, here's, here's the ministry. People think what I do as a pastor is the ministry. It's not. It's an equipping ministry. Notice in verse 12. It's to equip the saints. That's number one. For the work of the ministry. That's number two. And then thirdly, for the building up of the body of Christ. It builds the body of Christ. It strengthens individual believers, but it's to equip saints for the work of the ministry. So I want to ask you this week, how's your ministry? How is your ministry this week in community with others? Are we walking through life in a kind of a doldrum kind of way, not seeing people as uh, really needy for the gospel or a way to help or encourage someone or to maybe take food by to a family that's hurting or to maybe visit someone in the hospital or to care for a child in need? Maybe a single mom or a single dad needs some extra encouragement uh, maybe there's those who haven't been here for a while. They're traveling. They need a phone call to say, hey, we missed you in worship. How are you? Um, whatever that ministry may be, it could be a family member or a dear friend. How's the ministry? We are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We all have a spiritual gift or gifts as when we're born again in Jesus Christ. He's given gifts for the service to one another. Are you using your spiritual gift or gifts in the service of the body of Christ and in the sharing of his word and his gospel. Notice here, for the work of the ministry, there's, there's a work there. There's effort to be done. We don't want our spiritual muscles to atrophy. We want to see the building up of the body of Christ. I was talking with some brothers just this last week, and they said, Steve, did you play uh, sports in high school? I said, yes, I did. I played uh, basketball for three and a half years, and they looked at me kind of perplexed. I said, you might have to take that by faith. I was an athlete back in the day. And they said, well, over time, everything starts to settle and fall, doesn't it, brother? And I said, yes, it does. Muscles tend to atrophy if we're not using them. Same thing spiritually. If we're not using our gift or gifts, if we're walking through life and we're just kind of making our way casually through this world, we'll see that those spiritual muscles may atrophy, and we don't want to. So I want to encourage you this morning. Ministry is what you are to do every single day throughout the week. Sunday, the church gathered. Monday through Saturday, the church scattered. The work of the ministry. And then notice here, number two we saw last week, unity. Unity. Uh, notice, would you go back with me to verse 3 here? In Ephesians 4, he says, we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, we are one in Jesus Christ, the church universal, made up of all peoples that know Jesus. We are an individual local church, but churches all over the world that are meeting today that know Jesus, that are gospel-centered, that exalt Christ, that honor His Word, that believe in His resurrection— that believe that we're saved not by works, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
We are all part of the one body that belongs through the one Holy Spirit in the one Lord in faith and our Lord Jesus Christ by one God and Father over all. We are unified by nature of the new birth. But will you notice here with me, he says in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity, and notice this phrase, of the faith. The definite article there is the faith. This isn't the faith by which we believe. This is the faith, the entirety of the faith. Uh, This is sound doctrine, the Christian faith, the theology of Christianity. This is what Paul is saying. By regeneration, we are unified in the Spirit, but yet we grow in our unity. We grow in the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the purpose of all Bible study. That's the purpose of all preaching and teaching. It's not so that we have facts to argue or to debate. It's so that we would be more like Jesus, that we would know him in his sufferings, in his personhood, that we would honor him as our Lord and our Savior. Notice again, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And he says here, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Children tend to be impulsive. Children tend to not be certain. Children tend to be fearful. Uh, Children tend to be easily deceived. But Paul is saying, I'm writing the unity of the faith so that you'll no longer be children. Now, he does tell us in the book of Corinthians that in matters of sin, we are to be children. We're not to be mature in sin. We are to be childlike in relation to sin. But he says, in your thinking, be adults. Be adults. So here, we're not to be children tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Literally, when someone comes along today, has some sort of new teaching or new emphasis or something new that you've never heard before or some way to fleece the body of Christ for more monies as some of the health, wealth, and prosperity heretics love to do today. They will promise you healing and salvation if you only give $1,000 or more to their specific ministry. And they are shysters. They are those that want to profit from the Word of God as opposed to being servants of God. This, is, this takes humility. So the unity of the faith comes from growing up to the fullness of the stature in Christ. And we saw this last week. There is a unity of the faith. Uh, would you go with me, please, just to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. I just want you to see this. These are familiar verses. But Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Unity. Unity. Notice it doesn't say uniformity. We look different this morning. We come from different backgrounds. We're different sizes and shapes. We are different ages. We have different kinds of families, but yet we're one in Christ. Unity, not uniformity, and we have different gifts. And Paul says here in Philippians chapter 2, he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Notice these great, beautiful words, encouragement, comfort, participation, affection, sympathy. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Notice this encouragement, comfort, participation, affection, and sympathy produces a unity in the church, a unity, the same mind, same love, full accord together, one mind. And he qualifies, he says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. It's not about us. Real humility, real love, real encouragement says, I prefer you. I want to serve you. It's not about 
my well-being and my satisfaction and my advancement. No, it's about someone else's. It's a life of sacrifice. It's a life of humility given over to one another. It's not selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Boy, that's a work of the Spirit, isn't it? To count others more important than ourselves, more significant. And he says, let each of you not only look to his own interests. There's nothing wrong with you need to take care of yourself and your families. But he said, but also to the interests of others. You see, being a Christian is about being involved in a life of the one another's, to pray for one another, to serve one another, to encourage one another, to bear one another's burdens, all of these one another's, to love one another. And so he says, let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he brings us right to the Lordship of Christ. He goes, have this mind among yourselves. And he qualifies it, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of a cross. Talk about humility. Here he is, God, and he leaves heaven's thrones to come to this earth to redeem a people for his own possession, Paul tells us, that he did so by coming and putting on flesh, and he gave his life at the point of a torturous death on the death of a cross. But God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, say it with me, Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, this is great humility, great service, great unity in Christ Jesus. And we saw this in verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians chapter 4. Unity of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer tossed about as children, coming to maturity and manhood. And then verses 15 and 16, ministry, unity, but also maturity. Notice this. Rather speaking, the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. That's maturity. That's maturity. We are to grow up in Jesus. We are to mature. As I was talking to a friend the other day. He said, Steve, in my church, I have a man who's known Christ for 40 years, but he says he's never grown every year. If you have your own children or grandchildren, one of the great things to do in any home is to mark their growth on the doorpost. Have you done that? We did that in our home. To go back and see those pencil marks where children were growing and maturing, and some years they would grow a couple of inches, and some years maybe six or eight, and they just shot right up. And they don't feel like they're growing until they look back and say, boy, just a year ago I was so much shorter. I've grown, and we see that in emotional and relational ways as well. But Paul says we're to grow up, mature in every way, in every way, into him who is the head, into Christ. We may not feel, we, we may not feel personally that we're growing or maturing, but some brother or sister in Christ may say, boy, I notice you're stronger in the Lord. I notice you're giving wisdom to friends and how they're living for Jesus. I notice how... You, you're growing up in him. You're more mature in Christ. And this is what he's saying here. Notice the fruit of that in verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Maturity. Ministry. Equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, building itself up in love. Unity. Unity in the spirit, unity in the faith, unity by regeneration, unity in doctrine. But then maturity, growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from the whole body is joined together. So now, as we come to verse 17, now he's saying you've been saved. You have a new life in Jesus, and a new life demands a new way to live. 
not sinlessness, but faithfulness. Not sinlessness, but faithfulness. I would like to just encourage you this morning in some of this here. I want to take some time to lay this out for you because Paul is talking and comparing a couple of things this morning for us in this new life. There's a little phrase that we love to refer to in the body of Christ. It is total depravity, total depravity. As you know, about 60 or 70 years after John Calvin died, after the Great Reformation with Martin Luther, that some of his followers defended the faith in Holland against the remonstrance that was coming against him, saying that you can be saved by works rather than by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they developed a little acronym, a name of a flower, a tulip. And if you think of each of those letters, T-U-L-I-P, the first one, the letter T, is total depravity. Total depravity. Unconditional election is the U, limited atonement is the L, irresistible grace is the I, and the perseverance of the saints is the P, the tulip. Well, some of these words are a bit archaic, and they may be confusing to people. And I want to define them for you. Last night on Twitter, I had the privilege of debating for a few hours online this issue of depravity. Somebody was online basically saying that all sin is equal, and that's not true. All sin is sin, that is true. But certain sins in the Bible carry a greater responsibility, a greater, as it were, repentance, a greater consequence of those sins. Uh, We were told that Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 lied to the Holy Spirit about their giving. They sold property. They said they were going to give some to the church, but they kept it all back to themselves. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit executed them on the spot. Severe punishment. Severe punishment. Now, we all have lied in our life. We've all, we've all stretched the catch of the fish from one pound to ten pounds. We've all exaggerated. We've all spoken untruths to each other for self-preservation or whatever it may be. There's all matters of sin. All sin is sin, but not all sin is equal. In fact, speaking with Brother John this morning, John Leger, he was saying, you know, certain sins even in Proverbs were called an abomination before the Lord. He marked out certain sins. In fact, we're told in Scripture probably the most deadly sin is self-righteous religious pride. It's what drove Lucifer out of heaven in Isaiah 14 and Exodus 28. He tried to exalt himself above the throne of the Most High God. In Acts 12, it said that Herod was speaking and the people were yelling out saying, the voice of a God, not of a man. And Herod made a mistake. He started to believe his own press release and it said he fell over, was eaten by worms and died. What a way to die. And the reason why was it says he did not give God the glory. Nebuchadnezzar, He was strutting across his Babylonian empire upon his rooftop, and he says, look at the Babylon that I built by my might for my glory and by my strength. Few dangerous words, I, my, my, and my. Any time that we think of our glory beyond God and his glory, he humbles us, and he humbled Nebuchadnezzar. He had him go insane for seven years and eat grass like a wild animal out of the fields. And he grew hair on his body like the feathers of a wild bird and claws like that of a wild animal. And at the end of that seven years' time, it said that his sanity came back to him. And he said, the Lord is truly God and he is able to humble those who are full of pride. You see, certain sins have greater consequence. God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Not all sin is equal in terms of weight, of consequence, and repentance, even though all sin is sin and must be repented of. So what do we mean when we say depravity? What does it mean? Now, this doesn't mean that I sin as bad and as often as I could sin in every area of sin every day. That's not what depravity means. We are sinful people. We are depraved individuals. 
But we are not sinning as bad as or as often as we could sin in every area of sin every day. That's not what total depravity means. We all sin in different ways. Some in thoughts, some in words, some in deed, but we all sin every single day. When we say someone is totally depraved, we're not saying that they are sinning equal to their nature. Total depravity, here's what it does mean. It means that I am a sinner and I'm unable to save myself from my sins and be made right with a holy God by my own religious or good works. That's what total depravity means. I cannot save myself. I cannot save myself. I am a sinner and I am unable to save myself from my sins. Be made right with a holy God on my own religious or good works. Depravity means that we cannot save ourselves. What is this referred to? Total inability. It's a better word. Total inability. Total inability. I would like for you to go here with me as you see a few references above me to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. And again, I wanted to take some time with you this morning to show this. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, then also in verse 23. You'll see this here of what total inability looks like. While you're turning there, you know Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen what? Short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We've all sinned. One man may stand at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Another may stand at the top of Mount Everest, but neither can touch the stars. One sin may appear to be more grievous than another, and maybe so at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Another may appear to be more moral and more civil, more congenial. And you may be standing at the top of Mount Everest this morning in your goodness, but neither one can touch the stars. Neither one can reach the glory of God on their own merits. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How dramatically have we sinned? Notice here with me in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. The Apostle Paul says this, none is righteous, no, not one. That's what it means. Everyone, no one's righteous. No one understands. You might say, Steve, that's pretty harsh. I, I don't feel like I'm as bad off as my neighbor. I don't feel like I'm as depraved as my coworker. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, depraved. No one does good, not even one. Wait, I, I sent off my check to $100 to a world hunger organization. I'm feeding kids in third world countries. I visit my grandparents in an elderly retirement home. I'm kind to my neighbors. I cut their grass and I take care of them. No one does good. He's saying here eternally good. No one does good. Not good enough to earn your salvation. Not even one. He says their throat is an open grave. Even the words they speak are just worthy of death. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They're murderous. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And as a belt in verse 18 that girds this whole section together, here's why. There's no fear of God before their eyes. It all has to do with him. You see, brothers and sisters, no one ever lives greater than their view of God. No one ever lives greater than their view of God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. You show, you show me your view of God, I will tell you how you're living. You show me how you interpret Scripture and what your view of Jesus is, I'll tell you how you're living. If you look at God as simply as what some musicians do at the Grammys every year and simply want to thank the man upstairs, you want to treat God in such a frivolous and cheap way to kind of lower him to your status as a buddy or a pal or a good friend, as some people like to say, well, Jesus is the chairman of my board. No, he's not. As someone tried to tell me last week, he's my life coach. No, he is not. He is the Lord God of all, and you must treat him as such. He is holy, and we must honor him as such. We do not have the right to recreate him in our own image. No fear of God. The fear there means no reverence, no holiness, no respect before their eyes. They, they treat him as a buddy or a pal. 
Paul says this is reminiscent of their own sinful nature. Let's go back to the book of Ephesians for a moment. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Here's also our depravity. Here's why we have total inability. Here's why we cannot save ourselves. Here's what's made men morally weak and part of Satan's sin-sick system. Here's why we cannot come before our best works and say, this is why I'm worthy of glory. In fact, as you're turning there, Isaiah says a familiar passage, all of my own righteousness are like what? Filthy rags, filthy rags. He's using a term in the Hebrew that's very graphic. It means the menstrual rags of the Hebrew women. Paul even gets more graphic in Philippians 3. He says, I count everything as but rubbish. Scubalon is the Greek word. It means human excrement. That which is the most severe, putrid form of trash known that should be burned up in the junk heap. He said, I count it all rubbish except for knowing Christ. Our good works, our religious deeds, our own righteousness by human effort, it's rubbish. Paul says you were dead in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It was the habit of your life. Following the course of this world, we were slaves to sin. Following the prince of the power of the air, we were influenced by Satan and his evil kingdom. The spirit that is now working, the sons of disobedience, in whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. This is my testimony. This is your testimony. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And listen to this. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does he mean? In our own goodness, clothed in our own rags of our own righteousness, in our own religious works, in our own rags of our philanthropic gestures, in our own moral and civil works before a holy God, we were by nature children of wrath, worthy of God's condemnation in an eternal hell forever. Strong words. Strong words. He says, totally totally depraved, totally unable to save yourself. No wonder the old hymn writer said, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. See, that's salvation. We turn from our sin, we repent, we cling to Christ, we confess Him as Lord and Savior of our lives. And this is what he says in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Is it any more clear, beloved? It is not through works righteousness. It is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Total inability. Total inability. Now, it's interesting. In this book of Ephesians, The Greeks had prided themselves in great literature, art, philosophy, politics, science, you name it. They were advanced in their learning, and they looked upon others as being ignoramuses, slow of mind. But Paul says that the operation of their natural mind was futile, unproductive. That here, this this powerful work of grace is something that helps the most depraved of minds. In this book, The Criminal Personality, two authors, Jokelson and Samernow, maintain that criminal behavior is the result of warped thinking. They dedicate a section to that book. It's called Devoted to the Thinking Heirs of the Criminal. It's remarkable, they write, quote, that the criminal often derives as great an impact from his activities during non-arrestable phases as he does from crime. The criminal's thinking patterns operate everywhere. They are not restricted simply to crime, end quote. And so they offer kind of a sociological explanation for the depravity of man and the unsatisfactory works of people. 
in their own depravity. But this is not where Paul says wickedness comes from. You see, in the church at Ephesus, in this, this area of the Ephesians church, it was the center of much wickedness. Like those in most pagan religions, their rituals and practices were extensions of man's vilest and most perverted sins. Today's work, Satan tries to convince people that he doesn't exist. In fact, if he can make his own occultic practices seem like entertainment, he's even accomplished much. What do I mean by that? Tarot cards, the horoscope the Ouija board, and the latest of all little inventions that's become a high school craze over the last few weeks is called Charlie Charlie, where students line up two pencils on each other in the shape of a cross, and they yell out, Charlie Charlie, are you here? Or Charlie Charlie, can we play? And the pencils, after a while, will start to move, and you can see it on, on YouTube, and the kids get up from the table in horror, and they're, they're frightened. Anyone knows if you put two pencils on top of each other, that slick surface, just walking by the table and the natural vibration of the feet will make those pencils move. Isn't it interesting? People consider it great power if two pencils move. Great power if a little board says yes or no. Great power if they hear a door creak. As I told one man caught in the occult recently, I said, that's not power. That's impotency. I said, you want to talk about power? My God made the heavens and the earth, and he spoke it into existence. I don't know about you. I don't want to worship a fallen angel with a crushed head that Jesus defeated on the cross. I want to worship the true Lord God who spoke everything into existence, who holds it all together by the word of his power. Don't you? That's who we are to serve. That's real power. That's real power. It's not the frothy little scare tactics of YouTube and other places. But you see, Ephesus had these same problems. They had the magicians, and they had the soothsayers, and the diviners, and they ranked paganism, and the attendant immorality of Ephesus was commercial in this cultural city of the Roman Empire. It boasted of great pagan temples like the temple at Artemis or Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that existed right there in Ephesus. It was a leading city in debauchery and sexual immorality, and some historians rank it as the most lascivious city of the entire grouping of Asia Minor. Can you imagine if that's how our city was known? Paul was there at Ephesus. They planted a church, and he's writing to these dear Ephesian believers. This temple of Artemis, of Artemis, pardon me, was the center of much wickedness. Male and female roles were interchanged in orgiastic sex, homosexuality, and every other kind of perversion were common. Artemis was herself a sex goddess represented by an ugly, repulsive black female idol that looks something like a cross between a cow and a wolf. This was their stone idol. Now, today you couldn't even say that. That'd be politically incorrect to say that that's not good to share. But you see, there was no egalitarianism back in the day. She was served by thousands of temple prostitutes, eunuchs, singers, dancers, priests, and priestesses. Idols of Artemis and other deities were to be seen everywhere in every size and made out of every different kind of material. Of special popularity were the silver idols and the religious artifacts. It was because Paul's preaching cut deeply into that trade that the Ephesian silversmiths rallied the populace against him and his fellow believers. You can read about that in Acts 19, 24 to 28. That's gospel power, isn't it? People were coming to Christ, and it was hurting the trade of the idol makers at the temple of Diana, and it cut into their trade, and they tried to start a riot against him. Oh, I wish they would start a riot against this here, because we're cutting into the trade of the occult by preaching the gospel. Wouldn't that be wonderful? The temple of Artemis was one of the richest art collections there in existence. It also was used as a bank because most people feared stealing within its walls lest they incur the wrath of the goddess or other deities. There was a quarter-mile-wide perimeter that went around the temple, and it was an asylum for criminals. And they were for sale, were in apprehension and punishment as long as they 
remained within that temple confines. For obvious reasons, the presence of hundreds of hardened criminals added still further to Ephesus's corruption and vice. The fifth century BC Greek philosopher Heraclitus, himself a pagan, referred to Ephesus as, quote, the darkness of vileness, end quote. Amazing. And it's into this area that Paul writes Ephesians. It's into that darkness of vileness where the morals, they said, were lower than animals and the inhabitants of Ephesus were fit only to be drowned. He says there's no reason to believe that the situation had changed in those few hundred years before Paul came. If anything, it got worse. This is how he's looking at this church at Ephesus, the small little island of people faithful to God, trusted in Christ, obedient to the gospel, filled with the Holy Spirit, believing in his word, and they were living faithfully as a despised people in a giant cesspool of wickedness. Most of the believers had been a part of that paganism at one point. And they were given over to an indulgence and debauchery unparalleled. They faced continual temptations to the old ways. And so the apostle reminds them of this. Now let's look at some of these vices. What's a vice? It's neglecting God and others. It's the neglecting of God and others. And here... Here are some of these vices. It would take too long to write them and to jot down Scripture references. I'll just read some of them to you. Galatians 5.19, sexual immorality, impure thoughts. Colossians 3.5, lust. Galatians 5.20, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfish ambition, all taken out of Galatians chapter 5, verse 20. There are more in Galatians 5.20, divisions, conceit out of 2 Corinthians 12.20. In Galatians 5.21, envy. In Revelation 22, murder. Galatians 5.20, even Ephesians 5.5, idolatry, the worship of idols. Galatians 5.21, drunkenness. Luke 15.13, Galatians 5.21, wild living, just unbridled living. 1 Corinthians 6.9 and 10, and Ephesians 5.5, greed. Even stealing was rampant, 1 Corinthians 6.9 and 10. In line, Revelation 22, 12 to 16, these were some of the vices that plagued the early church. This is who Paul is writing about, about the power of the gospel, about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ to be different people. Now, the opposite of a vice is a virtue. The vice is that which is neglecting and offensive to God and others. The virtue is the byproducts of living for God. You'll see in this list above me, there's one scripture reference basically posted, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. You'll notice these things. They are the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is the evidence of real salvation, of real regeneration. And so the Apostle Paul is saying here, here are some virtues, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And notice that last one, self-control. Self-control, not unguarded pleasure, not unbridled passion, not unbroken pride, but self-control. We bring those things under the control of the Holy Spirit to live godly lives in thought, word, and deed. Again, not sinlessness, but faithfulness. But faithfulness, vice, and virtue. Let me say it this way here for you. Salvation is not a matter of behavior modification. It is total life transformation. Jesus Christ didn't come to reassess your political proclivities. He did not come so that you could realign your prejudices and be a nicer person to others. This is not behavior modification, but total life transformation. Listen, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, here's how new we are. We have a new mind. Aren't you grateful for that? A new mind, a new will. We want to please him. A new heart, new motives and passions and desires. A new inheritance, 
not for earthly treasure, but for heavenly treasure, a new relationship with God and the Lord and His Holy Spirit, new power to do the right thing, new knowledge through the Word of God, new wisdom, applied truth to everyday living, new perceptions, new understanding, a new righteousness, not our own, but we're clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. We have new love, new affection, new desire, and we're new citizens, not just of earth, but we're citizens of glory citizens of heaven. So Paul brings us to this. There are virtuous things, but this is not a higher form of morality. This is not civility. This is the byproducts of being transformed by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here in our few minutes remaining this morning, let's look at our text. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Put off put on. And here's why I said we're only going to get through this first verse. Number one this morning, identity. Identity. Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 17. The Apostle Paul says it this way, now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Recall briefly just the definition here I gave of the city of Ephesus, how corrupt and vile it was, how lascivious and sinful it was. And some of these precious believers were Gentiles that came out of that. And he says, as a point of encouragement, he says, don't go back. Don't go back. Don't go back. Don't live any longer as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Isn't it amazing? The Apostle Paul turns the great wisdom and knowledge that the Greeks had for themselves, and he said it's futility. It's a futility of thinking. He says this isn't wisdom. It's futility of mind. It's futility of mind. That word futility, uh, it means what is devoid of truth and appropriateness. It's what's given over to depravity and perverseness. It's a frailty and a want of what is vile. Paul says, you think you're brilliant as Greeks? You think you're the most educated people on the planet? You've graduated with PhDs from the Ephesus School of Learning at the Temple of Artemis and Diana. You pride yourselves in the loftiness of your own wisdom. And he says, it's futile before a holy God, compared to what it means to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. So he says, I'm, I'm going to testify into the Lord. I'm going to testify in the Lord. I want to take a record, in other words. I want to appeal to you on behalf of God. This word there also means it could mean to protest. He says, if you have a high view of God, you're honoring him, your reverence to him. He says, I want to protest in the Lord that you don't go back to this former way of life. Someone asked me a while back, he says, Steve, why do you like being a Protestant? I said, I love to protest. I love to stand for something. I want my life to count. I don't want to be part of the Ozzie and Harriet makeup of the culture. I don't want to be part of the status quo. I want to protest against a culture that has abandoned its calling before a holy God and call them back to the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not have to stutter to this generation. We can speak clearly because Paul says, don't walk any longer. It's a command as the Gentiles do. And again, that, that little word walk there, peripateo, it means the habit of your life, how you regulate your life, how you conduct your life. What's the barometer, in other words, of your life? What are you known for? What's our character? How are we making use of opportunities? How are we progressing through this world? Do people see us as just part of the culture, part of the times, as no better than anybody who doesn't know Jesus? Or do they say, wow, that, that woman, that child, that man, that son, that daughter, they live differently. They act differently. They're salt and light. They have new, new work in their life. There's been a newness of life. What's happened to them? Why do they respond differently? How is it that the habits of their lives have been changed and we can 
be given to swift testimony that if we're going to walk, let's not walk like we did in the former life. If we is what we was, then we ain't, right? Common phrase here. Newness of life. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, the apostle Paul is telling these wonderful Christians in Rome. In fact, while you're turning there, verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we going to continue in sin that grace may abound? He just told us at the end of Romans 5, grace superabounds where sin once abounded. And some well-meaning brother or sister said, Well, great, if grace abounds when I sin, I'm just going to keep on sinning so I'll get more grace. And Paul says, Meginita, by no means. No, no, a thousand times, no. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If we're heading to heaven, let's live like it. As Thomas Watson would say, let's take heaven by storm. I hope that's your heart this year for our church. Let's take heaven by storm. Not Palm City, not Stewart, not Jupiter, not Jensen, not Fort Pierce. Let's take heaven by storm. Let's be so heavenly minded that our lives will count on earth. Let's do something radical for the kingdom. Because the cross is a radical thing for us. And so he says in verse 4, we who were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? Newness of life. There's the evidence. There's the evidence. Is there evidence to convict us of being a Christian this morning? Josh McDowell, is there evidence that demands a verdict? Could people look at our lives and just say, that man, that woman, they're a believer, unmistakably, Newness of life, radical transformation, not behavior modification, new people, new people in him. You know this verse well, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's what? New creation. All the old things pass away. How many things become new? All things. All things become new. All things become new. As we close this morning, let's go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Oh, I love this. The Apostle Paul is speaking of his own life in Christ. And he says this in verse 18. Maybe you'll relate to this. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. He's not referring to the Holy Spirit or Christ in him, the hope of glory. He says that in my flesh. You see, as believers in Jesus Christ, we're new creations, but yet we live in unredeemed flesh. We're still incarcerated in this body of sin. And that's why Paul says in Romans 12, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Romans 8, we wait for the redemption of the body. One day we're going to have a new body, a glorified body. But now the battle is on. We're new creations, but yet... We're trapped in unredeemed flesh. And he says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. You ever feel that way? I want to do the right thing, but I don't. And the thing I don't want to do, I do. He says, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You might say, Brother Steve, I thought you just said we were crucified with Christ. We are. That old nature has been crucified with Christ, but the new I, the new man, lives in unredeemed flesh, and there's the battle. So I find to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. That's his physical flesh. The battle. We respond to this, don't we? Can't you relate to this? What Paul is saying, the thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I do. And he says in verse 24, wretched man that I am, 
You ever scream that out in the middle of the night after caving into a familiar sin? Wretched man, pitiful man, am I? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Listen, if Paul could cry that, I can cry it. The struggle of sin. But notice, I love that he ends with doxology. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There's victory in Christ. How do you obtain victory in your life over sin? You have to come to Jesus every day. Turn from your sin. Submit to him. Present your body as a living sacrifice. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. In other words, folks, we have to be radical with sin. Romans chapter 8. Just go over one chapter. I didn't put this verse down. But here, Romans chapter 8, verse 13, he says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. John Owen used to say this way, Get killing sin before it kills you. Get killing sin before it kills you. You might say, Brother, I thought on the cross Jesus took care of it. Yes, the penalty of sin. But every day in sanctification, we must die to the power of sin. And that's only by His grace. And one day we'll be free in glorification from the presence of sin. It'll all be gone. New heavens, new earth will be with the Lord, a resurrected, glorified body as he has, co-heirs with Christ to serve him forever. In the meantime, we are the church positionally triumphant in glory, but we're the church militant now. It's a battle. And it's a battle waging war within our bodies, Paul says. Get killing sin before it kills you. Don't negotiate with sin. Don't negotiate with it. Don't let it enter your thoughts and your minds. Don't fixate on it. Don't treasure up iniquity in your hearts. Store God's word up in your heart so that you will not sin against him. How can a young man keep his way pure? High school kids, how can you live a pure life before a holy God? By keeping it according to thy word. It takes power and strength outside of this body of sin through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin is so powerful, it took Jesus Christ, come from heaven, put it on flesh, dealing with its enmity on the cross, rising from the dead, resurrection, so that we could be born again and have victory over sin in our lives. That's all strong. Our reliance is not upon us. It's not upon intestinal fortitude. It is upon Christ himself. I'm happy to be completely shipwrecked upon the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking. Sand. Sinking. Are you sinking in sin this morning? Are you sinking down? You know him as your Lord and Savior, but you're sinking in sin. I just want to encourage you, my brother, my sister, turn from it. A righteous man falls down seven times, but a righteous man gets up seven times. Repentance. Don't stay in the far country. Don't stay in the pig pen of your own device. Don't wake up in the stupor of your own sinful choices. And again, we all have that various degrees of sin in thought, word, or deed, various way it manifests itself. Don't pass it off and say, well, we all have issues. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow may never come. I've got my fire insurance. I'm getting home to be with the Lord. Does it really matter how I live? Yes, it does. It does. It reveals the evidence of a truly saved man or woman. Grace doesn't say, I'm just going to do what I want. I'm going to go on sinning so the grace may abound. Grace says, Lord, give me the strength to live faithfully to you. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Politics cannot save you. It cannot help you. It cannot bring life transformation. It can modify behavior. It cannot transform your life. Newton said it, amazing grace, amazing grace, 
amazing grace. My sin is a pebble at the, at the bottom of the ocean of his grace. It takes that much grace to turn an enemy of God into a child of God. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. He says your identity is not walking like the Gentiles, like you used to do. At the temple of Artemis, at the temple of Diana, visiting the temple prostitutes, giving yourself over to all kinds of superintending drugs and the waywardness of unbridled passion, he said, don't do that. Don't walk as the Gentiles do. He said, I'm appealing to you. Your identity is now in Jesus. I hope that's a word of strength for you this morning, a word of encouragement. You don't have to go back to the old ways. You've died with Christ. You don't have to be dominated by that old sin. Man, you can live by the power of the Holy Spirit in newness of life. Thanks be to God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That's our great hope in the gospel. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, thank you. What a great God we have. What a great Lord we serve. And because of that, we have the hope of who you are. And because of that, Lord, we come and we rejoice in this this morning. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you for the power of the gospel. That we no longer have to be given over slaves to unrighteousness, slaves to sinfulness, slaves to the vices of our former life. We can have victory in Jesus because of the work, not that we have done, but the work that you have done. We surrender our hearts. Use this this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.